This podcast contains material that some listeners may find distressing. Content includes explicit language and themes related to workplace bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, intimidation, stalking, physical and sexual violence, discussions relating to self-harm and suicidality, disordered eating, other mental health issues, sexism, racism, and homophobia. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Behind Blue Doors, a podcast where women and allies have the right to speak their truth and share their stories. Good morning or afternoon, wherever you are in the world. It uh, is Lee hosting today with Maureen, and we have an amazing guest today, Fred Whitehurst. Uh, if you haven't heard about him, you need to look it up. He is ex-FBI agent. Is that what you would say, No, Fred? I'm a retired FBI agent. Retired. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you were a chemist and an attorney, a supervisory special agent in the Federal Bureau of Investigation Laboratory from 1986 to 1998. And uh, you blew the whistle on misconduct within the FBI crime lab that uh, resulted in extensive reforms. And you were the first successful FBI whistleblower. And you were blowing the whistle on forensic fraud uh, in the FBI crime lab. Now, I'm so interested in that because I don't know what that means. <laughs> so, Fred or Maureen, did you just want to introduce yourself? Well, I've been on the podcast before, uh, and I'm really privileged to come back today uh, to, to co-host with Lee. I spoke the last time when we covered Sarah Everard and uh, Cousins. So, yeah, I'm a police officer currently, 24 years on. I always say I'm a mom, a wife to another police officer that's been on 17 years, and he's one of the good ones. And (laughs) that's about all I can say. So I'm so happy to be here with you, Fred. I've done a lot of research about you getting ready for this. So I'm excited to hear your story. Well, I'm a retired FBI agent. I have a doctorate in chemistry and a Juris doctorate. I joined the FBI in 1982 and spent four years in the field um, doing criminal investigations. In 1986, in June of 86, I went to the FBI laboratory. Uh, During my time in the field, I saw petty corruption. I sort of set it aside, and I I talked to fellows about it. Some of them also were concerned. The petty corruption is fraud against the government, um, stealing evidence, uh, you know, drunk on duty, um, cheating on your firearms, that kind of thing. But I said, no, I'm, I'm... I'm here to go after the real criminals. Well, in 1986, I decided that, okay, that's enough. What I'm seeing here is destroying the foundation of law enforcement, not just the FBI, but law enforcement. FBI holds itself out as the premier law enforcement agency in the world. And, you know, I used to say, well, who entered into the law enforcement Olympics to say that? We never competed with anybody. But um, in 1986, I, I made up my mind. On the way back to the lab, don't do it in front of me or I'm going to make an issue of it. Well, they assigned me to a fellow who did it in front of me continually, <laughs> you know. What does uh, don't do what? Um, uh, y- you know, when we take an oath, it's really an oath. We're not swatting flies. It really means something. You all took oaths too, you know. Okay, but other people are are, are going about swatting flies. You know, you raise your hand, you swat that fly. That's what's going on. Okay. But um, uh, they assigned me to a guy that had not taken his oath seriously. Within 90 days of my being in the lab, he was teaching me to, you know, I had some issues with the lab was filthy and things weren't being done scientifically. And he said, don't worry. I said, you know, this is going to come out in court. He said, don't worry. Before you embarrass the FBI, you'll commit perjury. So part of my formal training was how to commit perjury. Okay. Now, I will put into that 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 situation was investigated by, among other things I brought up, by the U.S. Department of Justice Inspector General. And they they didn't he was that was bravado, according to them. But I watched him, you know, chuck evidence into a trash can, uh, pick it back up. That was a laugh. Um, You know, I watched that the lab was was filthy and. My colleagues there were concerned about it. They'd all gone to uh, to management. Management said, well, um, you know, he's our cross to bear. And that's what I was told. He's not anybody in particular's cross to bear. He is um, part and partial of the justice system where people are put into cages and death chambers. He is a 
He's a walking, talking human rights violator. And that's all it boils down to. Well, I... How does this work, uh, just because I'm in Canada? So the FBI have their own agents that do the crime. uh, So basically like the forensic side of things. And because we send it to a forensic science lab. Yes, we had a forensic science lab. It was just, you couldn't be in it unless you had a gun on your hip. Ah, see, ours is not like that. That's interesting. So where do people get the education and skills to be able to work in They didn't necessarily get it. We had. So it'd be like our identification bureau here in Canada, uh, where they go to the identification bureau first, and then they go to the Center of Forensic Science League. Right. So is uh, I guess what you're sort of describing is what a forensic science, what, what our IDENT would look like, our identification unit within the police service. So I, I, I don't know what you're saying. What I know is you've asked about credentials. There were people there with degrees in history, in um, political science, in, um, oh, mathematics, doing chemical analysis, and um, you name it, social, social studies or whatever. Right now, the FBI employs people that render opinions in court about very complex science that have, I know there's one of them has a degree in social science. The other one has a degree in kinesthesiology, a, a sports science. No, no chemistry courses ever, you know, a few minor courses. And um, that's just... But they have a gun. They have a gun and they also have an agenda. And... You know, there's a thing that happens when you're on the street, you know very well, y'all are law enforcement officers. You know very well that when you're on the street and you have to stop somebody, you stop them positively, absolutely, right now. There's no question. It's going to happen. I'm in charge. That same culture does not translate into a scientific arena. When I, when you send me evidence to prove somebody's guilty instead of to investigate and follow the evidence, I may, the evidence you send me may not support that. It doesn't mean the person's not guilty. It may not support it. Your hypothesis may be wrong. But when I conduct an analysis and it doesn't agree with your, it doesn't support your hypothesis, and you come at me threatening my job, physically threatening me with a ball-up fist, um, you know, all of that, sending me for fitness for duty to the shrink and all that stuff, you know, but when you do that, you you have, first of all, you've suborned perjury. Subornation of perjury is an obstruction of justice. You have messed with the prosecutor's case. Prosecutors in this country are seeking justice. There's a different task for defense attorneys. I'm a defense attorney. We're looking for holes in the prosecutor's case. The prosecutor is not going in there and only presenting that which upholds the hypothesis of guilt. Um, when uh, somebody in the crime lab says, oh, we're going to make this guy guilty and, and articulate that, well, uh, you know, I can make you two guilty. I can make you two into terrorists right now, absolutely, with the material that you have on your hands right now and not tell you the whole truth, you know? So, Fred, what would you see them, uh, these officers doing to basically what I'm understanding is you're saying they would pin crimes on people without really the evidence, or they would make the evidence go in in their favor. I think what happened was um, they would get a communication from the field and they say, so-and-so was picked up for, let's say, rape. And um, he has got this criminal background. And um, this poor little girl was raped. All the things that would bias the fellow in the lab, instead of saying, I would like you to see serology, Look at the evidence and see if you see any bodily fluids. Hair analysis, look at the, you know, whatever. Don't tell me what this is about. That's irrelevant. But this kind of a push. So the guy in the lab, I have this saying that at the FBI laboratory, if you give the right answer to the right guy at the right time, the right question, you get the right job. And if you look at management of the FBI laboratory, historically, they came out of Oh, the FBI's hair unit, for instance, which in 2015, the FBI admitted April of 2015 that 26 of 28 hair examiners over a 30 year period of time had issued false and misleading reports and testimony 95 percent of the time. 
Do you know how many human rights that violation, not only that, but we trained everybody in the United States in hair. So now you've got all these hair examiners out there. You know, the FBI looked at 20,000 cases. Multiply that times 50 now. And you've got, uh, it's, you can't overcome it. You can't overcome it. So what you've got is the, those guys could make a case. Well, they can't quite make this. And some overzealous prosecutor would say, but this is what happened to the poor person. And and one of the fixers, and that's what I'll call them, they're fixers, okay, would come along and they would save the day. If you see one law enforcement officer among many in the field or whatever who saves the day, you need to fire him summarily, get rid of him right now. Law enforcement is a team effort. You know, the FBI has a horrible, horrible history of being microphone grabbers. Local law enforcement gets a case, and all of a sudden the FBI is in there, and local law enforcement solves the case, and all of a sudden the FBI is there, and they've got the microphone in their face. The management paradigm at the FBI is one of um, self-importance, of greed, this career of mine is about my career, not about doing the job I was hired to do. And it's a very flawed management paradigm. Um, so, Fred, would you say, in your opinion, that a lot of this or most of this fraud was as a result of man- mismanagement? Every bit of it. Every bit of it. I'll give you an example. On the third day of August, 1989, Supervisor Special Agent William Tobin wrote a memo to his unit chief, Roger Aaron, saying, given false and misleading testimony 27 times under oath to a hearing uh, set up to investigate criminal activity by a federal judge. So William Tobin is one of the foremost materials analysts in this country, and he was in very good standing at the FBI. 3rd of August, 1989. Nobody did anything. I give a lecture. I'd love to give it to you. It's called Gates into Hell. Mr. Donald Eugene Gates spent 28 years in prison for a rape murder of Kathleen Schilling that he never committed, and they found out the guy that did it, and that guy died in prison in 2011. How many other women were killed, were raped, were murdered by that guy? Donald Eugene Gates got a mere $15.5 million, which, oh, that's a lot for 28 years of your life. No, that's not a lot at all. But I can show you every step of the way where FBI management covered up Michael Malone's sins, covered them up, despite the third day of August, the third day of August, Michael Malone should have been stopped right there. But FBI management is so concerned about their image. It is a, it is a, a absolutely failed paradigm, failed management paradigm. It's not about you. It's about what you're doing. Well, those of us, you, you all probably did the same and are doing the same thing. Those of us say, wait a minute, I don't want to be the boss. That's not what I'm here for. But you don't need to be the boss either. You know, I walked into a section chief one time with tears in my eyes, and I'm not a, a, a wimp. I went in with tears in my eyes. I said, I don't know what to do, Jim. I said, you're my boss, but you're a crook, and I don't know how to arrest you. You know? Well. Yeah, there's like nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to. I know. In, in yeah. 1989. I found myself in trial. I've been in the lab since 86. I found myself in a very high-profile trial out in San Francisco. My partner, the guy who trained me, was misleading the prosecutor in the court. And I was in San Francisco, and I knew what was about to happen. I was going to expose that. And I'll tell you, I walked around San Francisco with tears in my eyes for hours trying to figure out, okay, I know what this is going to do to me and my family. And... This is kind of hokey, but I found myself um, during that walk down on a pier, and I was looking at, at an old Liberty ship that carried these buckets in, in the water with a motor that carried um, U.S. soldiers off to the Pacific. And I thought to myself, you know what? Tens of thousands of those people went out to die for what we're, we're just crabbing on. I'm, I'm going to do this. Well, let me tell you, when... When nobody will listen to you, then you back the defense experts into a corner. You have a gun, they don't. You're a big guy, and they're just academics. And you tell them, um, my partner's lying, and this is what he's lying about. 
oh, boy. <laughs> and that was... So, I'm sorry, back up. So, you did this in court. You went up and no, you testified. No, no. They, wouldn't, they wouldn't let me testify. I went to the defense experts. I went to the defense experts. The judge stopped my... judge didn't know anything about this. Nobody in the courtroom knew anything about it. The judge said, you brought him in too late. This is unfair. You're not going to do this. But nobody in the courtroom realized was a um, doctor in graduate student were in a corner. They were a little afraid of me because I was a little, you know, how you get when you get the crap beat out of you or whatever. But I didn't cuss at him or anything. I said, okay. A little bit grisly. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe I'm not good company. But this is what's going on. This is what he, well, they, they were the defense experts. They already knew what I was saying was, was, you know, they're, they're real academic chemists. I mean, they're, you know, real scientists. But um, so they told the, uh, the prosecutor and I mean, the defense attorney, defense attorney said in open court, well, isn't there somebody in Washington, the D.C. that uh, disagrees with you and thinks you're, you know, presenting false. Invade? Oh, boy. And Matt, you, you know, you all are law enforcement officers. You know what that's going to do. When when people altered my reports. I said, now what's going to happen here? I don't, I didn't even know you've altered my report. You've gone to court and testified. You got a bachelor's degree in political science. You've testified about complex chemical analysis and an opinion rendered by a PhD chemist. And okay, now I'm going to be on the stand and somebody's going to hand me this report and they go, is this your report, Mr. Whitehurst? Said I'm, no, it's not my report. I didn't write this. No, what's going to happen there? So isn't this your name at the bottom of the report? No, the way we had it back then was these fixers got everybody's, all the scientists' reports, and then altered them. They were altering the reports without the scientist's knowledge or authorization. You know that management at that point should have fired the guy that, I mean, it was obvious. I went up and got my files. If you want files, if you want the files of the FBI, you got to wait for 10 or 12 years. If you work in the FBI building, you just walk upstairs and go look at them. And I had done 52 cases for this guy over a five-year period of time. And I had, um, <clears throat> I looked at 16 of them. And wait a minute, let me hang this one up. Of the 16, they'd all been changed. You know, when you do an... What, what was the purpose of changing them, Fred? To strengthen the prosecutor's case. If I say to you right now, Mo, right now you've got chloride ions in sodium ions and potassium ions and probably nitrate ions on your hand. I just wiped your hand. And you, by the way, also have urea because you exude it in your sweat. Those are the materials you find after a explosive goes off. Now I go into court and I say to folks, Mo had these things on her hands. That's consistent with her being a terrorist, a bomb maker. And you ain't never been close to a bomb. But you know what? They naturally occur. And so the FBI they would demand that I take alternative explanations for the data out. They just, you know, you can't do that. You'll hurt the prosecutor's case. And it was blatant. They told the inspector general, our job is to make sure those people are found guilty. They told them. And the inspector general's doing what? So what is this? Well, you know what? They're doing it again. I, I'm a forensic consultant and I look at federal cases. And they're, they've started doing it again. Yes, they're doing it right out. I mean, I got a chemist that says one thing. However, he says this. However, these things are all found so found naturally, so we can't say they came from an explosive. And the guy who summarizes report says these this type of explosive was found. Residues from this type of explosive was found. And when he was caught in the lie, and it's a lie of omission, in his testimony, he said, oh, I just summarized his report. No, he shaved to the report. So now, because of your whistleblowing, did it not result in an oversight body coming in? Or was that only for that period of time? No, there's no oversight of the FBI. An audit. Oh, I thought an audit resulted because of what came out of you um, coming forward. I thought they were forced for, for an oversight body. So I must have misunderstood that. But you are part of the National Whistleblower Center. Yes, but we're not an oversight. We don't have any power. It, you know, the FBI has a very sordid past of racial gender bias. And they're still, they're still caught up in that. And when, 
Emmanuel Johnson and 300 FBI, black FBI agents sued under the lawsuit called Badge. Black agents don't get equality. A special master was appointed and is still in place today to oversee equality in employment. When the FBI, the FBI laboratory, when they finished with that, um, the FBI, oh, we just don't know how this happened. We're going to do this and this and this. And they did some of this, this and this. But so were you seeing that a lot of racialized folks, people were getting changing the forensic stuff so that they were at a changing higher the changing the evidence. So they, there was a higher probability of them being convicted when they may have been innocent. No, what I'm saying is, first of all, race, race can enter into it. But if you don't have a protocol that you've determined works, you got to validate it. Okay. That means it's a, you get a valid answer. If you don't have a protocol, then what drives your, your opinion? One of the fellows that worked around me was using racial slurs all day long. One of his colleagues told the inspector general, well, he's not a really a serious bigot. He just hates everyone. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear, you know, he, he became enamored with a young Jewish woman who worked in the laboratory and she didn't want him. I mean, he sent her a bunch of roses. She just, thank you, but no. And from then on, she became the Jew bitch. And she was a Jew bitch openly, you know, and it was, um, you name it. But that's not unusual. It's not unusual, unfortunately, in law enforcement, as all of our experiences, the conversations that go on. I'm not saying they're right. It's it's awful. But it's just uh, um, interesting how it doesn't matter what agency you work for or where what country you live in. The stories are the same. The stories. Mo, if I have same. the courage to stand up and say, you know what, I don't want to hear this. I, I come from a multiracial family. But this, neither. This is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You walk into this laboratory and say the word one time, and you are on the street right now. Period. And if it's an everyday thing, and that's that's how it should be. Well, okay. Well, you know what? That's the way it's going to be, because there's a bunch of us who are talking like you're talking. There's a whole bunch of us. You know, Rosemary Dew recently um, put out the book called Your FBI. Please get it. Read it. Those are not whiny complainers. Your FBI. Um, Rosemary was an agent, got tired of pieces and parts of her anatomy being discussed openly, despite she was the squad super or whatever. You know. Oh, yeah. My breasts were talk- talked about on a regular basis. in the. In if the you department. are offended by such things, then you say, then you say, that offends me. That offends me. That's okay. You just do. I mean, if you talk about parts of my anatomy, look, okay, maybe it's squad room humor, but if you're offended, then I respect your offense. And, you know, we're not going to all walk around on tiptoes, but I respect the fact that you're offended by that. But, you know, there was a lady in our explosive unit who just amazing woman. She was, uh, she came in as a technician in the explosive unit of all men. And one of the major main heroes in the unit told her, I'm not working with you. You don't have a penis. Well, okay. You're not allowed to drive equipment and you only do the, the run and fetch stuff. Well, she left a GS 11 position, which is pretty good pay, took a GS four position, went to Rutgers university, got a law degree, then became an FBI agent herself got sick and tired of it. What's a oh, GS? It's, it's, it's government service. It's a level. Okay. If you're an 11, you go down to a four, you cut your uh, paycheck by about a, you're down to a third of what you were getting. Okay. She became an assistant U.S. attorney, went through that route after being an FBI agent. Then she went into private practice. Now she works for the U.S. Department of Justice. The, okay, we ought, we need to respect each other. Banter is banter. You know, I'm talking to two women here, okay? I'm a guy. And banter is banter. But if it's offensive, then, then, and, you know, we can tell each other that. We shouldn't be afraid of retaliation because, you know what, that's kind of funny, but I really, I really don't appreciate that. Do you know? Or enough. Enough already. Like, let's, 
let's get back to business kind of thing. Yeah. You know what, Fred, I was totally guilty in the beginning of my career to laugh, letting it happen, laugh about it because I, the culture had taught me very early on that if I had, I can't be a rat that I, my career was destroyed if I was to say anything. And, you know, ultimately that is what ha- what happened. <laughs> Once I did speak out, uh, yeah, my career has, has been demolished. What you're, what you're seeing there is um, dilettantes, if you will, pompous bastards who are above accountability that get to do what they want. They're bullies. And if you say to them, you know, Okay, but, you know, let's just go on about business. And then you find yourself beat up. It obviously put the two of you into not me. You're not you're not going to hurt me. You're not you're not beating me up. I'm going to tell the whole damn world what you people are doing. You you've got this big motto that you follow. Okay, well, let me tell the world what's really going on. Okay, And maybe maybe at the end you don't fix it. But triers of fact, jurors in court. Hearing this too many times, the FBI has has so many recent failures that they don't have any credibility. No, I know. I was going to say, like, how how are they doing in prosecutions right now? How how are they managing to convict anybody? You know, there are some folks that would follow anybody. We've recently seen that in our national politics, okay, that will follow anybody. Also, the FBI has a huge, huge office for congressional and public affairs. If you go on the television, you'll see today's FBI and FBI's most unwanted or most wanted and all of that kind of stuff. Okay. They're continually fighting to overcome. They don't have to. All they have to do is do their jobs and change how they do business, you know, how they treat people, how they allow the system to function or process and have process. I think that's what you're talking about as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, Fred, but it's about having actual processes in place step by step where you get rid of all of these other pieces that are affecting people's work and just stick to the scientific process in that lab, right? Not just in the lab, but in the organization. Well, everywhere, investigative, whatever it is. You you look at what happened to the sexual molestation of the uh, Olympic gymnast. Yes. FBI agent, FBI agent. What, what? You don't expect this is a man's world, that kind of thing. We're not going to bother with this. Uh, if you guys get an, a chance to interview or if you've interviewed Jane Turner. Yes, we have. If you have a chance to talk to Rosemary, you know, I, I know she just got tired of the, the harassment. And when she said something, it didn't stop it. And um, she talked about an incident where a brand new brand new agent on her squad when she was squad supervisor came in one morning and commented on the fact that her nipples were poking out. And she thought, if I can't even get respect out of a new kid right out of Quantico, you know, come on, come on. But I have a question for you, Fred. In, I think what Mo was talking about earlier was that you had, that you did have a landmark um, case that was where there was an executive or order then ensuring that there was whistleblower protection rights. Please tell me about that. Cause we would love to have something like that here. I, by coincidence, ended up at the law firm of Cohen, Cohen and Colapento. They, they ran the national whistleblower center at the time. The way, you know, you go looking for an attorney and the attorney's looking for your pocketbook. Cohen, Cohen and Colapento were not looking for my pocketbook. They were looking for making things right. And honestly, the way it happened was I, uh, Georgetown University and Duke University or sister universities or call it, they had this job fair. And I went and I talked to the students and, you know, as part of a presentation about joining the FBI. And I went out in the job fair and there's this lady sitting behind a cardboard box with a cardboard like arch over it. And it said National Whistleblower Center. And I said, because I've been looking for an attorney. I knew, okay. I, this, we can't keep doing this. And, um, that I ended up in their office. And when I was first there, I'd reached the point of being very distraught. You know, I don't know if you guys get there. You probably got more strength, but the tears, the whatever, what the, what is the world coming to? Yeah. So anyhow, they told me years later, 
when I walked in there, they I had a gun, you know, was bigger than either one of them. And, you know, and I'm sitting there with tears in my eyes trying to tell them, we got human rights violations going on here. Well, as soon as, as I retained them, um, I'm walking down Florida Avenue with Steve one day, and Steve's a lot shorter than me. And Steve said, okay, first thing we're going to, Steve Cohn. So the first thing we're going to do is sue the president of the United States. Now, look, look at this. Y'all, y'all are company people. Okay. You're company people. I'm, I'm going to what, what, what? I, I literally, I just given him everything I had, you know, despite my wife's objection. And I sat on the curb because I was nauseated and dizzy. And he didn't even notice me sitting down. Then I, I oh, come on, Fred. Okay. Then we, we, this really, I had a gun on, you know, we walk a little further. He said, we're going to sue the attorney general. Okay. Now the sit down. We're suing the FBI director. I, I sat down five times. I just sit down. He noticed he, it was terrifying to me. I'm a company man. All I wanted was for the science to be done right. I don't want to sue the damn president. Are you kidding me? Well, you know what? They sued and they won. They sued the U.S. government, the U.S. Department of Justice, the FBI, the Attorney General, the um, FBI Director, and the President. And they all lost. Wow. And That's amazing. All of that. What did that result in? Sorry, Lee. What did that result in? What was the result of winning or them losing? Well, they won because they were put in a position where they had to do it more right. First of all, the president, um, he, he, he folded first because the, um, the uh, Whistleblower Protection Act was federal law passed in 1989. Our U.S. Department of Justice and FBI refused to implement it. Here's a, the foremost law enforcement agencies in the United States refusing to obey federal law. That's what it did. So he ordered we were going to get a writ of mandamus against him. Now, was getting sued from a number of different directions because he couldn't keep his hands off women. And I wasn't, he didn't even sexually harass me. I just sued him so he'd get the Whistleblower Protection Act implemented. So he told them to implement it. And then the FBI caved. They agreed because I'm telling you, what I have is extremely document rich. Extremely. And it's government documents. Gigabytes of information. And I also told Cone, Cone, and Colapento when I went in the door the first time, I don't care if they kill me. I don't care what they do. My wife and I have decided we're going to do what we have to do to tell the truth in a court of law, even if it means we die. You imagine an American citizen having to say that. We've got to be able to tell the truth, if even if they're going to kill us. Well, they took us, they took us at, okay, good. They sued the FBI because uh, the FBI was very retaliatory. And, okay. Yeah. Well, they don't want their narrative uh, to, you know, they want to keep it looking the way they want it to but look. Look what happened during the last elections. I mean, they look terrible. They look horrible. They Nobody's really going to ever forget that, okay? But, and then I sued the Department of Justice because I wanted the files from every case the 11 people I accused had ever worked. I wanted to find out who got hurt. And it turned out to be the largest Freedom of Information Act request of its kind in FBI history. It took me years, years to process all of that. And I guess about 10 years ago, we realized that um, they hadn't given us but a minor whatever. But because of those files, because of those lawsuits, people are being freed who are innocent. There's a man in in Delaware named Elmer Daniels who spent almost 40 years in prison. The government knows he's, he's innocent. He was put there by a man named from the FBI, the guy I told you, they knew in 1989 they should have stopped and looked at all his work. Is he still with the FBI? No, no. No, what happened was, so um, what happened was they sent, he, he voluntarily left and went to the field. Nobody forced him out. And then he retired from the FBI. 
And then shortly thereafter, the FBI hired him as a contractor. <laughs> oh, my. Of course. And he did. was doing national security investigation background checks. OK. And when I found that out from a case down in Texas, I, I worked at the time and do work with The Washington Post, just giving them information. And so Spencer Shue with The Washington Post asked the FBI, what's he doing working for the FBI again? He'd been working for him for 12 more years, double dipping. And they so said, who was he? Who was he related to? Like, there's well, got to be reasons. Someone brought him back. Who? Who? Whose situation did he fix? So, anyhow, they immediately they they told Spencer Shue we didn't know about his background. The FBI said we we didn't know there were problems. Okay, you know they can't investigate themselves out of a hat box. So, anyhow, they fired him right then. They let him go right then. And one of the ways I've stayed on Mike, he's a cold case. I want to know the names of everybody he could have hurt. I have 1,837 files, case files from different cases I've collected over the years. My wife and I put out 52 grand to get it all documented, catalog, all that sort of stuff. You know, I'm, I'm a nut. Okay, there's, there's a certain level of obsession here, which is screaming at the screen right now. But I want to know who got hurt. I also knew that. How many are you at? How many? How many have you counted so far? How many? How many people have been hurt by my through all your files through those eleven people? How many? What's the count? I haven't counted because guess what? The FBI won't let us know. When Donald Eugene Gates came out as having been put down, and he got fifteen and a half million, another guy named Sante Tribble raised his hand and said, "What about me?" Another guy named Kirk Odom raised his hand and said, what about me? Huh? They weren't, they were, they, their cases were not handled. Their the hair in their cases were not handled by, they were handled by colleagues. And then the avalanche started. And so the FBI agreed. It came under phenomenal pressure. It agreed to engage in a investigation involving the FBI, the U.S. Department of Justice, the Innocence Project, and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and find out the 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 problem well in august 2013 they had realized the first 26 cases they they looked at were were flawed terribly so the all all 26 yes, of the, the first ones the fbi then unilaterally shut the investigation down didn't tell anybody well i was hearing from academics and in the innocence project type things we're not getting any more what somebody found that out it was not me and blew the whistle on it. In August 2014, put this big story about the FBI shut down these investigations, have abandoned, whatever. And the Department of Justice went to war with the FBI and said, you're going to raise it again. As soon as the media turns its attention away from the FBI, it then engages in nefarious activity. It All they're worried about is their image. There's a fellow, a very dear friend of mine named Derry Nelson. Derry was in prison for 33 years, accused by Mike. And his hair was the hair that was da 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 da. Okay, the Derry found me by mistake. He was in a federal prison here in North Carolina. He called his niece in Atlanta, said, "Would you find him information because I want to get into a program?" She found I put my name out with anywhere. And my phone number, okay? Um, Derry, Derry called me on the phone, and I made a very bad mistake. I said, in a conversation, I said, Mr. Nelson, I'm going to make you a very wealthy man. Well, I was like waving a, waving a red flag at a bull because all of those conversations are monitored, and they ought to be. They're in, they're in penal institutions. Derry um, finally got his conviction overturned, and I'd love to send you, and I'd send you if you wanted them, the judge's opinions, lies and fabrication from the, 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 the Judge Edelman that over, overturned the conviction. And then the appellate court um, said, when the government appealed it, the appellate court said, perjury. So the courts recognized that this man put 33 years in prison. He says, Fred... Most people are retiring at my age. I'm just trying to get a job. He, 
He's a young black man who had gone, he'd been, came out of the hood. He'd gone to a special academy because he was specially gifted. He wanted to play the piano. This is a good kid. And okay, back in the 80s, um, we had a war going on in Washington, D.C. Everybody knew about it. It was um, open gang warfare. And so law enforcement, as Manny Johnson said, law enforcement just went out there and, and did jump outs and grabbed young black men and made him guilty. Well, you know, there's collateral damage there. But Derry Nelson can't get a, a certificate of innocence because the government, 35 years later, has decided to recharge him, retry him. Despite the fact that they admit that gave perjurous testimony in court, they're going to retry this guy. And the reason is because they don't want to pay him for his time. So Derry can't get a job because he can't do anything. But they'll pay for the trial. <laughs> Which is going to cost how much? Well, think about that. There were three witnesses. Uh, well, one of them, the government said he lied 27 times under oath in a hearing involving a black federal judge in the state of Florida who just died recently as the senior member of the black congressional caucus. Alcee Hazen didn't just lay down. I've got the memos. I got the whole, you know. Fred, how many of, how many, uh, I'll say prisoners uh, or people that went to prison have reached out to you? Oh, I don't even keep count. Oh, you, you see that table? You see that table behind me? <laughs> That's some of them. Wow. So do you actively take on these cases nope. and try to work through them for them or anything like that? Nope. Or no? Mo, I'm a horrible attorney. I'm 74 years old. I am literally now holding on to things to stand up. Okay. That's just where I'm at physically. Um, and so, no. Did you expect that this would be the fight of your life? <laughs> this is the fun of my life. Good. This is my I cold like cases. That. Okay. You know, last week I spent three solid days reading documents from a guy that went down and FBI hair was involved. At the end of it, I had to say to him, but the FBI hair analysis helps your case. And so though they probably said something they weren't supposed to, it didn't hurt you the way they said it. So it, this isn't going to lead anywhere. Right. But as I said, to, if you need me, in the future, don't hesitate. You know this 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 legend or that I just talked to two federal agents yesterday who came to visit me, and I'd say, well, "You're a legend." Well, that's so much crap. You guys are legends too. Okay, that's so much crap. I'm Fred Whitehurst. I got my suspenders on. I drive a pickup truck with crank up windows on it, and I am approachable. It's a 1997 pickup truck, by the way, and I'm approachable. I'm here. You know. I'm busy. How did you become an attorney? Were you an attorney before you became an agent? Like, you're a chemist, you're an attorney. Like, how did this all, how hey, did you and, do all and, this? And Leon, I'm good looking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that's hey, an obvious. Okay. Your wife and I wish, I wish the audience could see your suspenders. He's got amazing suspenders on. Yeah, audience. yeah. Here's, here's, what, here's what actually happened. I had raised these issues and Deputy General Counsel came down and Laura said to me, she says, if you just understood the law, I don't be a damn lawyer. If you just understood the law, you'd see the issues you're raising are not that big a deal. So I applied to go to Georgetown and George Washington and American and Catholic and whatever. And they all turned me down except Georgetown. So I went to law school while I was suing all those other people. I went to law school at night. I lived for four years. I lived off about four hours sleep a night. Okay. My, on my team was a psychiatrist, was uh, three attorneys, was a doctor. What else? My family. I mean, they were all supporting me. I didn't do that. I couldn't do that. No human being can hold up under those. But anyhow, so I went to law school. When I got out of law school, I went from 92 to 96 in Georgetown. When I got out of law school, I had the same conversation. She said, you know, that's just theory. You got to practice law. Okay. So I practiced law for 17 years. I got to tell you, 
I absolutely have hated every microsecond of it. There's no logic in the courtroom. There's no logic at all. You know, you come in with a badge and a big gun and no, what you say is accepted. Somebody else comes in. Well, you know, they have an agenda. Oh, come on. Get below the laziness. But the problem I found in court of law is the courts are totally overwhelmed. I've been in court when there's as many as 12, 1,500 people for one 360-minute session. All you can do is get in line as an attorney, hand your suggestion to the prosecutor. If it's not outlandish, they put it down, and then you just, you have 30 seconds. If you got 720 people, you have 30 seconds per client. Most of those are continued, and the, the crowd of continued cases gets bigger and bigger and bigger to where the system's overwhelmed. But there's no time. Were you defense counsel? Indigent defense. And I got to tell you, a lot of my clients were as dangerous to me as they were to, you know, anybody else. Uh, the door to my office, we own the building. The door is locked. If you want to get in, you and my wife looks at you through a one-way thing. And right sitting right here is a shotgun. I'm not this left-wing, radical, hippie, pinko, commie idiot that doesn't know what life's about. I spent three years in the Vietnam War with combat units, okay? What I am is, well, actually, as I tell people, I'm an old, white, conservative Republican. But I'm not a Trumper, okay? <laughs> well, that's okay. You know, some people. But you have integrity. I think that's the important part. Like, it doesn't matter all this rough exterior that you have. You have a heart and you have integrity. And unfortunately, what we find when we talk to different people is throughout this world in all different facets of policing and frontline, unfortunately, people lose that somewhere. So, and you've kept it. And more than that, and that's amazing. Like, your journey is amazing, the amount of people you've touched. Well, careful, that's politically incorrect now, Mo. I don't touch people. <laughs> well, so, okay, I'm like, what did I say? You have got to walk on thin ice here, okay? Y'all Canadians, you just don't understand how thin the ice is. <laughs> I that well, we do. Touch people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean it in a, in a very a complimentary way. I mean, as I much as you hate yourself <laughs> as rough and tough and whatever, and so many of law enforcement is, but you have a heart and integrity, and that's something that's rare, rare. In Vietnam, for three years, I watched chaos. I watched chaos. Our national security depends upon strong moral management, strong moral leadership. We don't have it. The FBI definitely does not have it. It doesn't. Um, they talk about defunding. You know, the, our Congress, our senators will ask for information from the FBI, and the FBI tells them to pound sand. They will, they will not stand down for anyone. Okay, why they don't then just say, okay, well, that program's out. Forget it. You give me each and every document. The problem we have in, in D.C. is what's called the, the Washington, D.C. two-step. The FBI does background investigation on all those people that go work on the Hill. Now, suppose I were to investigate somebody and find out that he had a, a taste for little boys, okay? And instead of, instead of turning that into a criminal investigation, what I did was I said, okay, that's going to be my robot. That staffer is going to be somebody that when I ask him a question, he's going to give me an answer. Do you know? Washington, it's, it's what J. Edgar Hoover was a master at. It's called blackmail. And you can do just enough of that, just enough where um, you don't have to answer questions. You don't have to, until the people decide, uh, the people, I'm not talking about the people we send to D.C., till the people decide we're not going to tolerate this anymore. You mean American citizens? American citizens. We're not tolerating this anymore. You know, I hear conspiracy theorists, well, you know, that's a derogatory term used for people who have put pieces and parts together to decide something may have happened the way these are all consistent with, okay? I hear them <laughs> talking about um, issues with the FBI, and 
you know, 40 years ago, I thought they were nuts. Now I listen to them. Issues with law enforcement. Right. And you're like, I can't even believe it's, I'm the same. And I'm like, I never could have, I never thought that, that I was like, this is really what was happening until you're in it. And we you're, talked about that on our last podcast. We talked about how it's kind of like an onion. When you first start, it's all together. And then gradually all the pieces of the onion start coming off and you start seeing it for what it really is. And it's not what you thought when you started. Well, it's a human enterprise. I remember my very first day in the FBI. I was so proud. I feel myself full of all that hot air. And when I go to D.C. now, and I don't like going to D.C., but when I go to D.C. now, I see all these people are full of hot air. They're floating about six inches off the ground, okay? Or think they are. And the very first act that I committed, that I committed, was ordered to commit as an FBI potential candidate to be an agent, okay, was to sign a false document. It was a time and attendance sheet, and they said, okay, sign in at 6 o'clock. Well, it's 9 o'clock. We just got here. Sign in at 6 o'clock. And I thought to myself, okay, you know what? Somehow we overcome this because this is the FBI. When I went to the field, I got to the office the first day in the office in Houston, and I signed in at 7.15 or whatever, and an agent came up to me and said, you can't do that. Right in front of the squad super. says, if you sign in at 7.15, we all have to sign in after you, and we normally sign in at 6 o'clock or 6.30. They're getting there at 8 and 8.30, but they sign, they're stealing administratively uncontrollable overtime. They're stealing it. The first time I went on a road trip, I've got a voucher. I'll, okay, I spent for breakfast, I spent a dollar and change for, uh, you know, a, a breakfast sandwich or whatever. No, no, you have to take all the money for breakfast, all the money. Why? I didn't spend it. The resolution of that problem for me getting beat up for years, till I was four years on the field, was to go down and say, wait a minute, to the voucher folks, don't you dare, because they were beating me up. I said, don't you dare. What? But it just shows you when it's all these little things, like if someone's listening right now to our podcast and they're thinking, okay, so a few minutes here or signing in there or whatever, but you're talking about a bigger picture because that, that leaks into everything else you do. So if you never do any little thing right, then when do you do the big stuff right? And I think that's what you're saying is that you know, it's just a completely flawed system if we're not holding people accountable. And we're not anywhere. No. You know, um, you look at me and you think the next statement I make is going to sound crazy. But I am so happy that the Black Lives Movement is still a movement. You know, they have said enough is enough. You fix it or we'll burn it down. And they've started burning it down. I do not advocate violence, but people have been beat up for so long, so damn long. You know, I tell my clients, uh, you know, if you were white, there wouldn't be a problem. I tell my white clients, if you were black, you'd be in big trouble. And I say to my clients, you, do you want to fight this in court? Because the way you're going to do it is behind bars. You're a black man. You're in the South. And you know, I guess two years ago, I heard a judge say that in a continuing legal education thing where he had treated two young, he had had two young boys before him in juvenile court. This is a neat, neat story. These two kids came from suburban. They got together. They were underage. They went to the local um, Burger King or whatever. They pulled a gun. They got $2 and change and burgers. They went out and waited till the cops got there and got arrested. Big fun. When they came to court, the judge is up there, and he says they brought the first kid there. He was out there with his family. We're talking the same crime, the same day, everything exactly the same except color. He's out there with his family. brought him up. We handled him. I said, now, where's the other young man? They brought him from the back in shackles. And this judge, it, it, for him, that was a come-to-Jesus moment. Oh, my gosh. And he's a judge, and he's out there now. I'm thinking, yeah, and all the rest of it know it. And I say to my clients, do you want to solve this from prison, or do you want to go home? I can get you home. 
But if you fight this court system, this justice system, which is phenomenally biased, terribly, then you're going to get chewed up. They're going to tear you up. You're going to get punished badly, as an example. Wow. I didn't like being an attorney, but (laughs) I learned a lot. There's so many... Well, one of the narratives that went around here, and I'm sure it was in the States as well, you know, there's a lot of, well, you know, a lot of the officers were like, well, you know, all lives matter. Um, yeah, but your life, you're like, and I tried to explain it to them. Your house isn't on fire. Their house is on fire. So we need to put out the fire and assist them in putting out the fire. You know, it's not a matter of, you know, all houses aren't on fire. <laughs> like I, it just blows my mind that that's sort of the the narrative that's still out there. And I think a lot of it's because of shame. People hold shame for their behavior and they don't want to look and have to deal with the, the, the choices they've, the choices they've made, the things they've said and the things that they've done. Or denial. Well, our, our, our hiring paradigm is also bad. When you go to get, um, you go to get hired as a law enforcement officer, the kid that says, I want to put people in jail should be said, well, thank you. That's really good. Go watch television. Okay. You're a peacekeeper. You know, I have a recent incident where I have a recent incident where a couple of young men were hired and they in the last two weeks, they completely embroiled a community completely. What? And I had the chance to meet one of them. And I said to him, hey, I'm I'm here to uh, Mr. White or some so and so. I said, you're you're what? I said, you're the guy I want fired tomorrow. Because our community is now being thrown into chaos because of, well, you know, no, you don't know. I mean, three months ago, we were trying to work together for a common goal. Now we're upset with each other. Okay. And that's you. And that's you. So when we hire, I mean, I, at one time at the FBI, if you want to be, if you want to be um, a manager, you hold your hand up. Nobody looks at whether you can do your job right. You hold your hand up. Okay. And so, okay, well, I'll, I'll look into it. I really didn't want it, but I look into it. And I was in this class and um, they asked us, why do you want to do this? And one of the guys says, he's a scientist. He's a forensic chemist. He says, cause I want to put a lot of people in jail. What? What? Well, he went into management. And let me let me read. Let me read. Let me see if I can find that thing. There's a passage that is um, that is fascinating. A deputy general counsel for the FBI said this when they interviewed him about he just said it during the interview. He says, so and so explained that the FBI does not document poor work performance, but transfers poor performers to other duties. Such employees are told that they're not performing well, and the employee responds by requesting a transfer, which is granted. The transfer may even be a promotion, and many transfers, because of poor work, are to headquarters in the FBI facility at Quantico. And this 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 guy actually didn't even try to hide this during his interview on uh, March the 26, 1996. What? What? If you can't make shoes, you got then go change tires. You can't be in law enforcement. And that guy, by the way, was African-American. And he'd been assigned to review my complaints about that particular individual who, you know, busted out with racial slurs all the time. And he didn't find a problem. Right. Well, he didn't find a problem. And that fixed their situation. The man ended up leaving our organization, going work for the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, and retired from there. Well, and... And I mean, we see it, we see it with all racialized people. We see it with women as well, where, you know, you have to play a certain, from a certain rule book or you're not going to get anywhere. And if you raised your hand for management and everyone around you was like, I don't know her and I don't like her. And she's, she, you know, she talks too much. She says she's too much of a bitch. She is not getting it. It doesn't matter. You have to be quiet. You have to not say anything and nod your head and go along. And be a yes man or a yes woman. Yeah. yeah. So, Some of the comments that I make would offend you. And if you told me, if you told me, Fred, that's eh, not where I'm coming from. 
then I wouldn't make them anymore. A very dear friend of mine is a judge. And, um, well, I used to, you know, I've got a dear wife I've been married to for 48 years, but I, I'm just a terrible flirt. Okay. And she had a, um, she had a friend and they, we just bantered back and forth. And she told me one day, this good friend of mine, um, that's really, I just don't like that. You know, I'm a Christian. And, and you know what? When she ran for judge, I back bankrolled her. I'm not offended if, if you say to me, you know, that's not quite me, Fred. Okay. I'm not. But so it's a good friend of mine is a psychiatrist and he and I, you know, we, we have talked, what is sexual harassment? What is harassment? And it's a difficult thing to put a handle on. Um, we need to get along. We need a joke. You know, law enforcement is a rough kind of an environment. Okay. It's just rough. We need to be able to joke, but we also need to have the courage and the self-respect that when somebody says, well, it's not quite my thing, you know, then, okay, it's not quite your thing. You know, in that, that case, we, we go on to the next, um, you know. I have a question for you, Fred. Sorry. Did you, have you experienced, just because it's been very common in all of our um, interviews with people or um, when we're talking with them, did you, have, did you experience a lot of retaliation? It can be summed up in this situation, this example. While we were going through this, we adopted a little girl, seven months old from India. By the time she was uh, four years old, she was, it, it started having issues. We thought they were health issues. So we took her to my psychiatrist, the guy that was going to for whatever. And in 20 minutes, this is what she said to him. She's a total stranger. My mom and dad are sad all the time. Sometime I'm sad, but I can't tell them because I'll make them more sad. Now, did we get retaliated against or not, Lee? Oh, this is a four-year-old child. And, you know, and it does really strike a chord, you saying that, because I have two kids, and they're older, much older than that. But they're still young enough where, you know, all the things that we are going through, from the choices we've made to speak out, it affects them so badly. And you know it, and they try so hard to be strong for you. And it's such a good point. It's, it's not just it's really not us. It's what it does to our families that just, yeah, I'm making Lee tear up here. Because it's so true. Like you just nailed it on the head. And the best example ever, you're absolutely right. It's the family that you're never going to be the same. It's horror. And my wife and I articulated out loud, we are going to do what we have to up to. And if they kill us to tell the truth in a court of law, we took an oath for that. We sacrificed our daughter. And how is she doing How does she feel about your journey? It was a horrible childhood for a child. You know, she shouldn't have been subjected to that. Any social worker would have been wise to say, y'all really, if you're going to go into combat, don't take a baby with you, you know, but we did. And we don't always expect it. You know, I, I didn't know I was uh, going to be in combat. <laughs> I thought I was, you know, I signed up to do a great job and I was a good investigator and I was, you know, um, you know, and 21, 21 years later, it's like, what the hell just happened? How did you, I get You know here? what the problem is, Lee? You didn't cross the blue line. All those people that say you cross the blue. No, they're talking to you on the other side of the blue line. Cops don't steal. Cops don't lie. Cops don't commit human rights violations, period. You never did. You didn't cross that line. They did. And that's your problem. Well, you're one of us. You're one of us. Oh, and I'm happy to be. And it uh, makes me have no desire, really, to work there. You know, like what the morals and values that that system, this, that colonialist patriotic system that policing and, and military are based on is just not, doesn't sit anymore with my, you know, and, and to be honest, when I got hired, my morals and values were exactly where they are today. It was the police service changed 
it made me change to fit in to um well you allowed accept them all to, these you allowed them. i allowed them to i i wanted to fit in you don't want to you know because i would see the way they would talk about these other officers that were not towing the line right not towing the blue line and what was happening to them and then you know you're like well i can't like when i was sexually assaulted i'm like i can't say anything my career's done if i do you know, and eventually six months later, I discussed it with somebody who then put it through the chain of command. And, and then my career since then, that was in 2017, my career is ultimately. Were, were, were you carrying a weapon on the street? Oh, for every, oh, yeah, every I, day, every day you go out, you can be shot and killed. You know what? You took one. You took a bullet. That's what happened. You took a bullet. No, you took a bullet. I took about 20, <laughs> but we, we, we raised our hand. We took an oath. We knew. You just didn't expect to be shot in the back. You know? Yes. yes. And from a forensic scientist, no less, saying shot in the back is exactly right. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Now, as we come to an end, Fred, your your story expands such a long period of time. There's so much that we can't even get into. But before we um, sign off, I just wanted to ask you if there's anything that, you know, you want the audience to know or any advice that you would like to give to the other, because there's lots of whistleblowers listening to this or those that haven't been a whistleblower yet. They'd love to be and they're afraid. What do you want to say to them? I think there's two things. You need a fight to fight again. I learned that from the Viet Cong. They didn't come at us in mass waves. They stood up or hid or whatever and shot at us and took us off one by one. You need to fight to fight again. You're angry. Think of how to accomplish what you want to accomplish and continue fighting as long as you can. And at the end of it, one person can change the world. One person so go ahead and do it. And you sure have. Yeah, amaz- um, amazing. I'm so happy I got to talk to you today. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. You need a fight to fight again. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Behind Blue Doors podcast to catch the latest episodes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our website at www.behindbluedoors.org. Take care and until next time.